Hello, I'm Kerry. Hi, I'm Hannah. Welcome to the Machine on Learning podcast. We both have degrees in English literature. We both work at the cutting edge of emerging technologies and neither of us can properly code. This podcast exists to seek out people working with technology in unconventional ways so that we can explore the tech world through new lenses, squash tech snobbery, meet really cool people, and more importantly, introduce you to one another. Today, we're really excited to be talking to Catherine Allen, co-founder and CEO of Liminar Immersive, a business that brings VR cinema experiences to thousands of audience members. She's a BAFTA award winner, a TEDx speaker, and a creative and cultural VR industry spokesperson. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us. You're our first guest on Machine on Learning, so we're really excited to have you. How are you today? Oh, great. Yeah, it's good to be here. And um, to be your first guest, that feels like such a privilege. <laughs> um, yeah, very good. Thanks this morning. Brilliant. And to give our listeners some background, can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, so um, I founded Liminar Immersive, um, the VR company I set up in. It was in 2016 when I was a bit frustrated, to be honest, having worked at BBC and absolutely loved making, producing two of their first public-facing VR experiences. Absolutely loved that, but it was frustrating that it was not getting, the content wasn't getting to broader audiences. Like it was, this was 2015, 2016, so I guess I wasn't patient, but um, it was really only getting to those headset early adopters, you know, and often the people who buy the headsets, the Oculus, because of, for gaming purposes. Um, and so um, having gone from only just discovering VR sort of, a year before that to then working in it to then thinking right I want to do something to change this sort of the course of this medium's um, journey really to make it so that it reaches broader audiences much um, much sooner and gets their input while you know crucial decisions about the medium's future are still being made and it's still kind of malleable you know before mm-hmm. launch of bedded in. So um, set up Liminar Immersive and um, left the BBC and um, it was lots of, uh, initially, lots of brainstorms from thinking, how do we get the art broad audiences? How do we, we, we didn't even know at the time that the term was like exhibitor that we should be using. There wasn't, there was very little language around it, but we found that um, by taking the art to arts venues, places that um, non-early adopters would go to anyway, and already had like a normalized like slot of time for, um, that there was this opportunity for, VR to be something that you would just do like you know like as part of a Friday evening you're at the dinner afterwards or a Saturday afternoon with your friends and um, so yeah we found a slot that people would want to do VR in anyway it fits as an art, arts activity and we screened VR over yeah, the last few years to just over 15,000 people um, and did lots of research on them but we found like a, a way that it just really fitted where we curate selections of content and themes put them on as a night out and we at the same time as having put all these events on we learned from a public perspective you know we look like a we, we are a vr experience company but from the industry sector perspective we have learned so much about what audiences want especially coming back to that theme of early adopters the people who do not consider themselves early adopters and they tend to be um, our audience majority women and skew a bit older than the VR medium demographic, which is um, sort of young men in their 20s. Mm. So, yeah, that's my, my passion is very much, you know, broadening the pool of people who get to input into VR's future. But yeah, before that, I worked as an educational app producer um, and was at the BBC as well in between yeah, about 13 years in sort of the digital media world. 
Mm, that's so interesting. I'm, I'm going to sneak a question in before I ask the prepared question. So when you're talking about the events that you worked in, so is it, is it interactive content or is it like, I guess, like watching it but in an interactive VR space? Because I've done a couple of the, you know, the RA did the sort of, you too can be a painter in a VR space. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of your jam or is it a bit different from that? Yeah, great question. We've tested different approaches from super, super interactive uh, to sit back and here's a 360 video and let it wash over you. You can feel present, um, but this is as much a time for reflection and just being there with yourself as it is for uh, creating something, for instance. Um, I mean, those two sort of user interaction models, I guess, are very, very different. So it was really good to test them early on. We found that as a gateway experience, so for people at that early stage in their VR journey, it's super reassuring and sort of welcoming to say, you don't need to do anything. You don't even need to be using a controller. We can set it all up for you. And so it can be a really lovely way of sort of easing into the world of VR. So actually by by the time the pandemic struck and uh, we just got to the point where we were running VR theatres, often like we'd be two different places at once, you know, running something in Australia and something in Cheltenham at the same time. But we just found that we'd scaled to the point we'd learned about what audiences want and 360 video or animation where you don't need to do anything is just a great way of getting new people in. Mm, That's so interesting. I remember I, I think I did one for the first time in 2016. There was like a, I was in Germany and there was a VR exhibition. So it had lots of like stands that you could, that you could go to. And there was one where it was like, you sit on a chair and the, the VR replicates giving you like a torso and you sit there and then you look around. And just before I started, I managed to like kick the technology that keeps you in line with the screen. So I oh. experienced the entire thing floating slightly to the left of a headless torso whilst it experienced this like VR journey. And I'm very scared of heights. So I was just like this floating head in, oh, no. in a VR world. It was great, I loved it, but I was also like, <laughs> oh, this is <laughs> what it's meant to be. Um, yeah, it's the sensor that you would have knocked. Um, and it's that kind of thing, you know, they add just little extra bit, bits of friction Mm. Um, at the early stage we used to have loads of sensors and um, we used sort of six off VR, uh, lots of um, heavy computers that we would lug. We, I remember when we went to we set the VR theatre in Cambridge as part of the film festival there and that was when we decided to really go for it with like full-on six degrees of freedom which means you can get up and move around and controllers and it got to the point where although it was impressive once you once it was working like for our audience many just couldn't actually even operate the controllers because this is where we learned that you need to have the controllers for vr are based around an xbox controller especially well, oculus it's like if you imagine an xbox controller that's been like chopped in half and then turned into two one in each hand so like two controllers called the touch controllers that's what it is. So it's intuitive if you're used to using an Xbox or even just using a games console in general. general. Our audience are skewed a bit older, like I think it's predominantly kind of 40, 50 plus, lots of professors as well. Um, and that meant that I think there's just not that people hadn't grown up where in their teens and early 20s, they were constantly playing video games all the time. So there wasn't that sort of muscle memory there for the controllers. And our, our team was sometimes having to like press people's fingers down on the buttons for them. It's very strange. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it's all these things that, you know, for, for people who are new to VR, especially if they're nervous, those points of friction 
can also be barriers to making them feel like this is my space this is for me this is something that I can do cool yeah so part of this podcast and why we're doing this is that we're really interested in sort of how people have got into different types of technologies through different routes and um, you know you mentioned that you went quite quickly from having not been involved in VR to you know obviously being a thought leader in the creative VR industry so we were just sort of wondering what what got you into VR in the first place? You know what this is a bit of an embarrassing story but I actually thought I invented it (laughs) (laughs) in 2014 when the Google Cardboard was already like out to the public you could buy it you know get it posted to you and Oculus had already got the Kickstarter going you know that was things were already in train yet I had never heard of it and I was a an app producer and previous to that head of marketing for iOS apps um you know pretty high profile like educational apps as well um yet I still as a woman in tech I had not heard of virtual reality and I even remember having like conversations with people before that where we were like conjuring up like what will the next new medium be and we were sort of imagining like, will it be like holograms will it be something that's like almost like real life because it's probably gonna get closer to that isn't it uh, so yeah I find it kind of interesting that how was it that a girl who when I was like 15 was building computers and selling them and was built making websites and all of that stuff you know really into that as a teenager how had I not heard of the art when it seems that a lot of the men I know had heard of it at that age and it even maybe um, tried out the virtual boy maybe or they'd been to um, an arcade and tried out virtual reality there as, as teenagers so I think that's interesting that I only discovered it by thinking I invented it from first principles which was um I was we were brainstorming ideas for kids apps and you, you know after brainstorm is sometimes where the best ideas come up and we were thinking about simulation and that theme of simulation how to make a kid feel like they're really there say like in a jungle learning about animals and so came up with this idea that you could like create the illusion of presence that you could be there um, and I tried out put on a 360 video to test it on sorry a video on YouTube to test it on my phone as if it was a 360 video and moved my head at the same time as a panning shot of a landscape and had my coat over my head and oh it's like I'm there <laughs> and now I know that that is basically recreating 360 video uh, <laughs> didn't even know that that existed so yeah my colleagues were hilarious they bought me a Google Cardboard headset after that <laughs> for my birthday which wasn't soon after much long after that and uh, yeah I suppose the rest of history I just got really really into this medium uh, initially I guess through like silly roller coaster demos on my phone <laughs> yeah I love that I mean we all have a thing we think we've invented that I think it turns out we have but yeah. <laughs> it's all the best ideas you know people will come up with them independently won't they um, yeah. but I also think it's interesting that why did my colleagues who mainly men find it so hilarious that I'd never heard of it before why had they all heard of it how was it in my orbit yeah and it's interesting because I was kind of going to ask about you know whether new technology is something you've always been interested in but it sounds like it is sort of from your background and kind of you know building computers since you were 15 and so I, I almost want to reverse that and ask as someone who was always interested in technology which it sounds like you are but obviously correct me if I've attributed that how did you end up in a you know more creative space I guess sort of you know having made it very clear that that gaming's not the area that you're interested in how how did it go in that direction 
Well, yeah, no, really great question because I don't see them as two separate things really. Like technology and creativity are just as one. And to me, it's sort of, I've also been like passionate about theatre ever since same age really you know that was my degree I studied theatre and performance studies Um, but then would always bring in my love of tech sort of especially in like sort of second and third year as I was getting more into my swing at at university like I'd bring in tech into my work so the two have um, it's always felt like a sort of false way to look at it to see the two as separate when so much of like the things I've been proud of say in like just this is a long time ago now but like my theatre studies group degree for instance or the creative ideas that I've had that have turned into apps when I was working as an app producer it's all fueled in some way by the inspiration from tech and by tech like it's it's like you know painters have their their brushes but if you're a creative technologist then you have the technology as your tools so I suppose seeing that technology is not creative doesn't, for me, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and some of the most creative people I know are people who, you know, programmers, people who code all day. And that's, that is how they express their creativity. Yeah. I really love that. Um, and I also think because like almost one of the, one of the stereotypes around technology that I find quite, annoying sometimes is this idea of someone who is in technology but purely technology like comes in and revolutionizes an industry that they didn't have part of before and they you know this this idea that like because you're an outsider but you understand tech you can come and do something completely new to an industry that you were never part of in a kind of I basically think the film Gladiator made a bunch of men think that they too could run Rome and it's like Rome's really complex you couldn't run Rome if you used to run an army. And so, yeah, that, like, that's my personal bugbear, but I think this idea of having always come up with both and then being just like so inextricable and integrated so that you can see better things to do with both or either. Yeah. It's a really, like, nice reframing of that. And it's such an interesting way to look at it, isn't it? People who come in and say, I'm going to sort this out because I know tech. I can sort out this industry. And it's actually a good thing that I know nothing about this industry. And I'm coming to it just maybe as a hobbyist, but I can revolutionize it through disruption and through Moore's law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you could almost say that that's a bit like colonizing this space, <laughs> saying I'm going to fix all these problems of you know, people who have actually probably been head down trying to fix them for years. And, and get these, prob- these you know, situations, you know, for instance, gig economy, where lots of people get left behind. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're going to fuck Rome up. Like, that's just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think. <laughs> I love your way of looking at it, Hannah. It's, yeah, I'm feeling like... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, having said all of that, I don't know a huge amount about VR technology and I am a bit of an outsider to that industry. So whilst I'm not going to try and, you know, revolutionise it, it would be really great. It all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think, you know, kicking the sensors is really the, the new VR experience. So, um, yeah, no, it would be great if you could tell us a bit more about VR as like a technology. How does it, like, how does that actually work? Well, I'll give you a, one of those sort of top-level overviews mm. um, rather than getting super into technical detail. Essentially, it simulates being in another time and or another place um, through 
If it's virtual reality, um, usually that's through headsets, but it could be something else like a dome, for instance. Um, maybe in the future it'll be, you could do it through contact lenses, so you don't have something sort of on your head getting in the way. Um, but it's simulating being in a different time or space, so you can feel like you're in a real place like the Antarctic right now, um, or maybe you could go back in time where it might be, say, a 360 video or some volumetric video that you'd recorded like a week ago and it feels like you're going back to that. Or it might be a complete fantasy space, you know, it might be another planet that doesn't exist. It might be a whole virtual world. So essentially, it's, I suppose it's bottled human experience is how I like to think of it. It's, we can have we can bottle up imagination either from one person or a group of people and then virtual reality as a mechanism of, rather than what we've done before which was how we've had to transfer it through say nuggets like storytelling um virtual reality allows you to can have that more immediate sense and it uses a lot more simulation and representation and you can scale that experience to thousands, millions, even people. And so it's, yeah, bottling human experience and then the potential to scale it. It's quite, yeah, I think it's quite rad. It's a whole new framework, really, of media. It's when you start to get your head around what, what virtual reality is, then it can really open up all sorts of ways of just looking at life in general, I think, as well. Um, yeah, different paradigms on this world. Brilliant. I love the idea of bottling bottling up it's lovely it's a really nice way of describing it yeah could you give us a few examples of some of the projects that you've worked on I think just to put everything you've talked about into context I guess so could you tell us about a couple of projects you've worked on that you have worked really well or that you're particularly proud of and maybe talk about some of the projects that you that you're working on at the moment as well yeah yeah well um uh, the first VR experience that I produced was called Easter Rising Voice of a Rebel, which was when I was at BBC. And it lets you live through the memories of a rebel, young rebel, he was 19 at the time, Easter Rising of 1916. So it's the last like uprising on British soil. It was British at the time. This was in Dublin, though. Um, and it was when the um, Republicans, rebels, really wanted Ireland to be separate. And so this was their... This, this was their like uh, young people's revolution for many young people anyway. And so you live through the memories actually of rather than it being, this is real and trying to go for that like hyper-realistic perspective. We, we did it where you live through the memories of Willie McNeve, who was at the time a young man, say 19. Willie McNeve when he's in his eighties. So the way we created the experience, we found an archive tape or the team found an architect we're, we're a really wonderful company in australia called um Bertov. and um, yeah the director oscar he discovered through a conversation in a bar after a gig as you do the grandson of william and eve who had this archive tape where he's talking about it's just a cassette tape he's talking about his experiences in a really like straight matter of fact kind of way where he's saying this happened and then this happened he doesn't really romanticize it which is great when you're bbc because it gives you a really lovely um, spine, neutralish spine to hang off um, doing a reimagination, a revisualization of those memories. Obviously, we will never know what was in his head as he was recounting it, but we did our best, you know, it's like an artistic interpretation of that. So, we really wanted to get across the experience itself, gets across that sort of texture of memory where it's not photorealistic, it's sort of frayed at the edges, and it's got this sort of poetic vibe to it 
which for us really helped saying, look, this is, we're not claiming this to be truth because there's actually so many different um, ways to recount what happened and many different memories of what happened. And also depending on what, what perspective you come from, you know, I'm sure a British soldier's way of recounting that scenario um, and that tragedy, because so many people died, so many civilians especially, would be very, very different from say, you know, one of the Irish Republican rebels. Uh, so yeah, we wanted to get across that, but this is his memories and this is our um, reimagination of that. So yeah, that came out in 2016 uh, to mark the centenary of the Easter Rising. A history experience aimed at history lovers, which was interesting when the people who tend to own VR headsets have come in from a gaming perspective, I suppose going back to that theme we are talking about early on. And then, yeah, after that, having seen the audience being pretty, or I didn't see it, but just getting the feelings that the audience is, is pretty male heavy, really wanting to do something about this gender gap that seemed to be emerging with virtual reality. And also just noticing that my friends, like my peers, people would consider, especially women who would consider themselves quite tech savvy, were still thinking what I was doing was a bit weird and not engaging with VR, thinking of it as maybe something, a kind of kooky, trivial, fun thing, you know, like, oh, Catherine's gone down this crazy fun rabbit hole. Um, not really engaging it seriously. So I'd noticed that and had lots of conversations with Chris Sizemore, my commissioner at the time. And that turned into a proposal for the next piece, which is called No Small Talk, which is a VR chat show. It's actually in 360 video. And um, so it feels like you're sitting there having a really interesting conversation um, with two amazing women who have their own podcasts, um, Cherry Healy and Emma Gannon. So you're having this conversation about big ideas that affect our daily life. It's just like being in a, you know, sitting in a coffee shop, having a chat with friends. You're the sort of third person in that conversation. They're giving you eye contact at moments. Um, you're kind of a quiet friend, really. But you, we wanted to explore the magic of conversation, just how it is actually that art of conversation is an activity in and of itself. It's a form of entertainment. So yeah, getting women into VR, but also showing off the magic of conversation, seeing we could get that sense of like presence in, in a headset. So yeah, that was the next piece that I worked on in 2016. And yeah, so I'm pretty, pretty proud of those two projects, but actually it was quite a long time ago now, I guess. And things have moved on quite a lot in the sector, although, you know, Easter Rising Voice of Rebel just continued to be one of those kind of well, perennial VR experiences that, you know, tends to get uh, quite a lot of attention on the um, VR app store, which is great. I feel like now, yeah, I've, got a lot of got a lot more insight into audiences because of having ran dozens and dozens now of VR theatre events with awesome limited team um, we've got it down to a T now how to run you know a first time gateway VR experience so I suppose like most recently before Covid hit and everything had to stop uh, the thing that I'm just me and the team we were just super proud of is the Cirque du Soleil and virtual reality tour, which is where um, there's some really lovely Cirque du Soleil content, really incredible content. It was actually been sitting on the VR app stores for a while now, and it didn't seem to be getting the love that it deserved. And we found that when we tested it, when we had a pop-up venue in Bristol, that it was just actually worked really well as like a night out. And we were getting lots of couples come as date nights. So we decided just to really go for it, glam it up, frame it as very much as a date night, give it, you know, up the props, um, up the like performativity of our VR hosts as well, the style. Um, and we took it to theatres, like receiving house theatres, who would usually take in touring productions um, over sort of winter 
2019 into spring 2020. And yeah, but the last date that we had was in Harvey Nichols actually in Bristol. It was just going so well with Harvey Nichols where you know it was all sold out. They had this lovely space up on the top floor of the department store and we put together like themed cocktails with it too. And it was just, uh, we've reached a point where like, we really are bringing new people into the art in a way that is sustainable. We could keep doing this from a financial perspective. It doesn't require public subsidy. It was stable and wonderful. We kind of found a, yeah, a machine for technology adoption, I guess to put it into crude terms. Um, so yeah, really, really proud of that. Um, but yeah, now post pandemic, well not post it yet, are we mid, mid pandemic? We're working with the uh, NHS Arden and Gen and a choir called Ex Cathedra in Birmingham to create a VR singing in nature experience. People who are stuck at home where you can sing in really like well-loved songs in really beautiful places in the British countryside. And we just want to bring people joy. We want to cheer, you know, cheer people up, bring us um, booster spirits. And yeah, we're doing it for Google Cardboard. <laughs> which you can do on your phone and uh, pop your phone into a Google Cardboard. Uh, super accessible. It's come back round full circle. <laughs> That's amazing. I love, I love the sound of those. They're, they're quite diverse as well, from the history through to the circus, through to what you're doing now. That's, yes. That's yeah, I guess, I guess it is quite diverse. All, I suppose, within that sort of non-gaming space. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of VR games I love, and um, I've learned so much from the world of VR gaming. But um, there is a culture of VR content outside gaming, and that's, that's worth nurturing too. Yeah, definitely. Just to pick up on something you mentioned about the Cirque du Soleil, about having props. When you say props, and you talked about the cocktails, which I love, I think that's a great idea. What other kind of props do you have or in things that complement the VR experience? <laughs> oh, well, we found that we did a lot of post-show surveys and focus groups and we're bringing universities so to, to run these with us. So we found that when talking to audience members, we learned a lot about the kind of environment um to make a good vr experience so it's the physical space that you're in makes a huge difference to your quality of experience when you're in there and there's some basics around duty of care like privacy so you know not having it where people can gawp at you as you're doing vr in a lobby say but having a separate space people sitting together in a circle a sense of that like collective energy um i think a decompression zone for instance those those are the the basics we we like to think of a duty of care but then once you've got that foundation you can really play with it and that's what we did where we as i say we ramped up the glam factor for Cirque du Soleil VR tour and had lots of red roses and candles fake candles but they looked real uh, it looked a bit like a kind of romantic seance some people said <laughs> 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 slash a sort of yeah like a date <laughs> I suppose and um, we had like low lighting oh we had our scent diffuser and we worked with a lovely specialist uh, in aromatherapy in Clifton who helped us find the very best scents for the particular content we were screening so yeah the, the smells mattered to us and so for certain play we had like citrus scents uh, which to give it that like zing um, people would often come out buzzing you know so we wanted that vibe where people come out and you know they might feel like they'd had a cocktail before they'd had their cocktail <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so gorgeous and I know oh. I know where you mean at the top of Harvey Nicks it's so pretty isn't it because you can look out over the city and the lights at, in the evening and I can imagine yeah. it's a nice place to be to have that real kind of romantic 
yeah as well really nice I learned so much about I suppose just over the last few years about how physical context makes such a difference about the use of technology it's not just with VR I mean obviously VR because you're like vulnerable in it and you're you know surrendering your senses uh, in the real world you do have it does really matter but for instance that you feel safe and it does matter the sort of because VR is a physical experience I imagine that's one reason why the physical outside physical context matters too but I just think that matters with all forms of um, screens that we look at you know whether it's strapped to your face or not I mean like I've seen myself over lockdown my own experiences for instance like the environment that you know I'm spending so many hours looking at screen all day the physical setup that I have actually makes such a difference not just to productivity but like um stopping me from like get, getting migraines from too much screen time you know being like yeah i think that's something that we need to i've just learned and thought a lot about this it's not, not just with vr it's generally thinking about our bodies in relation to how we use technology like our eyes and our brains and our fingers and our back they all are affected too it's like a physiological thing and i've had some interesting studies about this like i'm um, looking at people over lockdown and how it's affected their physiology mm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really fascinating because I was thinking, yes, it's really interesting thinking about, yeah, our laptops and our bodies and, you know, I now have to do yoga all the time because my shoulders are so hunched from the computer screen. But then actually, like, it's really interesting to hear you say this because I think it can almost feel like with VR, the assumption is that the physical doesn't matter because you're like replacing the physical world that's in front of you. And I think so much of the like, you know, when you see VR in films or TV shows, it's always like given this replacement for reality so I think yeah this idea of putting it in the context of the person sitting in the room and how they might feel is feels like a much more almost like authentic way to think about it yeah it's grounded isn't it it's not sci-fi it's like no this is real life this is audiences of a present who are having experiences that you know they will remember if it's the first time they've experienced this new medium they will it will stick in their mind so yeah all this stuff matters yeah so just sort of thinking about that bodily experience in a different, slightly different way. Um, so Kerry and I have both heard anecdata, you know, a fact. Actually, I think she heard it and told it to me and then I repeated it back to her two weeks later as if I'd heard it myself. But <laughs> um, this idea that, thinking about sort of gender bias in VR and the idea that women are more likely to feel motion sick using devices or sort of get a bit disbalanced by them because they're normally made by and tested on males and you know i don't know if that's about like different heights or if it's about eye shape and physiognomy but it'd be really really interesting to get your thoughts on that because i know i know you have some so <laughs> yeah yeah it is it's sort i completely see that point and it, it does feel like the eye headsets as a woman they're not made for me i feel like they're made for like a sort of big strapping californian man with like a big head and um you know knows how to use controllers already for gaming and so yeah def i don't feel that it's it's, it's maybe and also in terms of race as well um there's lots there's, there's been quite a lot of comment within the vr community and criticism rightly so because they're definitely made for caucasian head shapes mm. so um that, that in mind, I have noticed and felt, and we've had audience members say to this quite a lot, that it doesn't feel the headsets are made for them. And so that is true. But this point around motion sickness and um, women being more likely to get it, we had not seen that whatsoever at Limina. 
whilst studies outside of Limina, have been a few now, show that women are more likely to get the motion sickness, we just, we hadn't seen that whatsoever. There's no, we do ask people and we log it. If they say, tell us, you know, when, when people come out of the VR theatre and they talk to the supervisor, often who's like at the box office and, um, you know, somebody ever said they felt motion sick, very rarely, you know, you do get, statistically, you know, it's going to happen um, very occasionally though, but we would log that. And then in our focus groups, we'd talk about it. We just didn't see it ourselves. So I thought, why is it then that there's this sort of idea in the VR sector, women are more likely to get motion sick, but we haven't seen it at Limina. What is that? Well, um, I did a bit of reading and um, I happened anyway at the time to be reading Caroline Crando Perez's Invisible Women book. And was sort of getting more interested in like, yeah, physiology and technology. And having done a bit of digging around it, I suppose <laughs> this is what I've come to. Bear in mind though, like this is, this is not my area of, I'm much more in the sort of social, cultural and theatre performance world kind of academically, not, not sort of science and biology, etc. So bear that in mind. So with all those caveats, I just, I think it is cultural factors that make women more likely to feel nauseous in virtual reality. And it's about the context and it's about how comfortable they feel. It's about their anxiety levels, for instance. And I remember when I was just getting into VR, it's very soon after I thought I'd invented it, uh, when I was at a conference in California, I was talking to a guy at Google who was working on the Google Cardboard team. And he said to me that fact, and he put it in his conference presentation as well, about like, well, women are more likely to feel nauseous. I have to say, for me, it acts as a gatekeeping device. It made me more nervous about doing VR. And I've seen that in talking to women about this too. They feel more nervous about it. But they say, oh, well, I think I might get, you know, it might make me a bit sick. I've heard it's not great for women. And um, so that will put women off doing it. <laughs> so that's one thing, the, the effect of it. I suppose that doesn't discount this theory, <laughs> though. But then also, there's a reason why it's said it's often around rods and cones and shading in our eyeballs. So I put that to um, Professor David Bull, who heads up Bristol's Vision Institute at Bristol University. He's really established in this field and does understand this stuff, right? Put it to him and I said, you know, what's about this rods and the cones theory and that women's eyeballs are different? And he said, yeah, but it's minimal, the difference. It wouldn't cause this nausea. It's, it's much more likely that it's cultural factors. So for instance, if you've got experience doing video gaming, then you're used to that simulation. You've got that experience. So if you've been doing that since you're a teenager, then it's normalized to you. And when you come to do VR, it doesn't feel so alien. So your brain's got more of like a framework to understand it within. So then you're less likely, this is obviously a hypothesis here, you know, it need much more investigation, but then you're less likely to feel um, nauseous afterwards so it's, it's that mismatch, a bit like being travel sick, where different senses are telling you different things. Um, so yeah, if you've got experience, you know, this is okay, this is what it should be like. And if you haven't got experience, it's all new to you, you're more likely to feel nauseous. So that's what talking to him really helped illuminate for me. And then thinking about, well, why have we not seen this at Limina? I think it may be because of all the attention we do around duty of care and making people feel welcome. Whoever they are, when they come into this space, it's their space. They should take ownership over this. When they've got that headset, they're given it by the VR host. That's, they should have a sense, and I think they do have a sense of like ownership over this is their experience. This is for them. Um, there's no reason why they should feel that they're just kind of, you know, popping their head in on someone else's 
new cool tech. No, this is about them. This has been made for them. So all that sense of this is like, this is you, all this kind of a very calm environment. We have soothing music. Um, we even have like soundscapes in the background, um, like soothing sounds. Some people have likened the liminal experience, maybe not the Cirque du Soleil one, but um, when we, especially with our sort of more mindful VR content to being like at a spa. So I think when you really go like max out on the duty of care, like we did, you don't, that may be a factor there. Um, that sense of not being anxious, not having people watching you or feeling that you might have your photograph taken, staying seated. We're super, you know, as I said earlier, like 360 video is good way in. So the gateways are often quite like tame. Um, so I think that it, it's kind of like anything you do need to like build it up and having that experience versus not having that experience makes a difference. Um, you know, if somebody had never been on a roller coaster before, would you take them on like the scariest roller coaster at Alton Towers? No, you would like ease them in with like a fun little train, you know, that doesn't go upside down. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's just, it's the same concept here. So yeah, cultural factors, feelings of anxiety. If you're feeling anxious, you're probably more likely to feel nauseous as well. So bring all this stuff together. That's why I think it's not true about the eyeballs. It's a, it, 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 it's a, bit, like, it's a bit like, do you know um, when trains were first uh, becoming popular and used a lot in the Victorian times, and there was this moral panic, this fear that women shouldn't be going on trains because their wombs might fall out. Oh my God. <laughs> Biology being used as wow. a game, it happens. Yeah. Oh, I think it's so interesting the way you, like, you naturally use language of gateways which feels like such a like contrast to the standard of gatekeeping that we see happening. And I just, it, it's just so, it's so classic, isn't it? It's like, oh, there's a sense that maybe women are going to be more motion sick. So instead of like trying to find out why and stop it happening, we just go, oh, it's probably their biology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and, yeah. stop, and like stop there and then it's just like this like oh no there's nothing to be done because of your funny shape exactly eyeball. and then we think it's almost well it's 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 great i think that caroline crando press brought out this point it doesn't have to be this way yeah you know? and and showing the um the development of virtual reality at that crucial stage you know in the innovation ideation stage where like things were being developed and it was mainly men that were being tested on that is a really good point mm. but also if that idea just yeah it's it's well it doesn't work for my eyeballs can't use it then i mean this is like vr is like a gift there is this incredible new medium you know we have been given this power of simulation as i say like bottling human experience and then scaling it like that and then to just to like say oh well you know women could feel more, more nauseous and shouldn't be doing it it's madness imagine if it was like that you know the birth TV or the birth of cinema mm. or radio like it's it's absolutely bizarre yeah um, I think we, we that, that that myth I hope that it gets sorted out <laughs> yeah but I think it's also it also really shows like the importance of having women but also diversity more generally in the, mm. in the tech because it's okay. like you have one set of people who might hear oh if you test on men you're only going to get stuff that's good for men and it doesn't even like occur to them that maybe they should test on some more women Whereas, yeah. like, and then at the other end of it it's like you've got someone like yourself who is building technology from a completely different starting point where like 
things like empathy and bodily awareness and physical comfort and anti-anxiety are just built into the way you work and it, it sounds like that's what you set out to do as part of what you wanted to make part of the VR experience rather yeah. than like we have to remember to add on empathy at the end of what we're doing and so and then like surprise surprise that has a positive effect on anti-motion sickness for everyone yeah sometimes these conversations also go in this like we recompensate or not mm. like let's start testing on women but if they had done that what they would have found was oh wait that isn't actually the difference and you know it yeah it's so much more complex like that and that's why it's so important to have so much of these different voices and different perspectives being more research needs to be done on the eyeballs thing and looking at the cultural factors and and it's the same yeah just drawing the seam out to all so many forms of emerging technology you know more thought and attention needs to go into this stuff the early stage it's that pivotal moment isn't it those really important if you think of like technology adoption life cycle you know the innovators and the early adopters stage before you know, that sort of chasm which is notoriously difficult to cross for a new technology before getting to the early majority, the late majority, before reaching the mainstream. All the stuff that happens in that moment, it could even be, you know, a few decades, but the decisions that get made and the people who are in the room, that has will have been like an amplified effect, a hugely amplified effect later down the line um, when it gets scaled. So I think that's maybe the difference as well with um, sort of this new big tech world that we have is that because we've got this mass scaling and very very quick scaling and um, you've got this there's not as much time as like say with more sort of linear forms of growth uh to adapt as we go to make it work for broader audiences i think it needs that the, the broader audience consideration needs to happen proactively very early on because uh, before it goes into like rapid scale, you know, Moore's law style exponential curve um, mode, or at least that that's often the goal. So you've mentioned Moore's law a couple of times now. Um, Carrie, I don't know about you, but I don't know what that is. Uh, would, <laughs> um, so would you mind yeah. us and our listeners? Yeah, sorry. I, it's one of these things that, as a concept, but you know, when you become so familiar with it, you forget <laughs> others may not know. Um, so it's, it's often in kind of like futurology circles as well, it's often talked about quite a bit, that it's this um, rule that as time goes by, the cost and efficiency of um, computer processing of processors gets increasingly more efficient and costs less. So it just means that you've got, if you plot it, it's going exponential rather than like a linear growth. You've got this... Um, very rapid advancement in computing technology and that we've observed for the last, well, from sort of from the 20th century for the last good few decades now. Modern computing has this growth potential, which is quite rare to see in industries and is very interesting. And that's what gives it this, that's why, you know, investors fawn over it. And that's why so quickly, you know, the most richest people in the world have found, got their money through, through technology. That's why things have changed so quickly. You could say because of what well, Moore's law things are, computing develops so rapidly that it's exponential. The mm. thing that's not necessarily exponential though, is the adoption. It's like, and that's a, something that, it's starting again as sort of in the world of futurology gets recently as being something that's been talked about is this like pushing back resistance yeah computers can develop exponentially 
Does culture want to do that? Or if you try to like really weird things happen <laughs> with culture, you know, <laughs> like people have still got actually quite fixed values on their lives, like the amount of hours in the day, you know, the amount of sleep we need, the amount of food we need to eat, the, you know, so there's certain things that relate to like bodily reality for us as people. Um, so yeah, there's that kind of tension, I think, um, a resistance maybe to this idea of the exponential tech scaling, the constant disruption. Pretty, um, yeah, I've done a little bit of futurology for sci-fi um, over the last few years and it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff to look at this. That's really yeah. interesting. Thank you. In, in terms of, we talked a little bit about the technology growing. How do you feel that VR will develop in the next five years or so? Like, what do you expect will happen in that space and what you're most excited about? So over lockdown, uh, it's been interesting to see what's happened with VR because there has there was a sort of feeling like, oh, well, everyone's going to be stuck in their homes. So that means we might be panic buying of VR headsets. I didn't see any panic buying of VR headsets, um, partly because I think, well, with the Oculus Quest, which is the one that's sort of very advanced and mm. it's you know, the price point is like 400, 500 pounds. Um, so it's within, sort of within realms of people purchasing it. That was um, because of the supply disru disruption, because of COVID, because of um, manufacturers, it gets manufactured in Asia. So that was held back so people couldn't buy them. But actually the Oculus Quest, sorry, the Oculus Go, which is a cheaper one, which is like 130 pounds, um, was available and i don't i didn't see i was observing google trends to see if there was people looking to buy them i couldn't see any any it wasn't trending i couldn't see from you know research i did when i put in uh, just went on argos or if the oculus go was something that was like not in stock no mm. it wasn't so um it's interesting to see people didn't panic buy vr headsets and it could have been that girl golden opportunity where it's like, what do I need? I'm going to be, could be stuck in the house for all this time. Lou roll and head, a VR headset. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we didn't see that. I think people went back maybe to what felt comforting, what they knew, baking, you know, things that maybe remind them of like childhood as well, or things mm. to help with anxiety, that all the weirdness of this all, you know, meditation, for instance, yoga. Um, so that didn't, that's interesting to see that that didn't happen. But what has happened is that the, there has been an increase um, in the people who already have headsets in their usage of it, especially um, the high-end headsets like the Oculus Quest. People who did have the Oculus Quest or people who um, have, the, for instance, HTC Vive. Uh, they have the more advanced headsets, using them more for gaming, um, it being something which is actually looking like quite a sort of fertile, fruitful space at the moment, actually. So yeah, VR gaming seems to be now reaching its point where it's, it's, it's getting steadier, you know, it's getting like more bedded into a certain um, kind of culture, you know. Uh, with that though, um, something I'm observing is that the types of games that are getting a lot of prominence and that are being big, big budget, triple A kind of stuff like funded, uh, they are quite, some of them are quite violent. Like for instance, you know, the Hitman franchise, that's now gonna be coming out. 
next one will be available on VR for PlayStation. Um, obviously, you know, there's that violence in, in gaming is, is a big debate in and of itself, and there's all sorts of content around that you get access. But it's to see, you know, VR trying to cross this adoption curve at the moment, it is interesting to see ye olde techniques of gaming and also a whole other point, sex, VR porn, being used whether intentional or not, but that seems to be happening to help it cross that into the mainstream, to cross that adoption curve, to propel it into society. So it's kind of like, yeah, appealing to base desires, I think. So finally answer your question, Kerry, on what's the, what does this mean for the future? I think it, it, you know, could go in all sorts of ways. And I don't really want to, I don't like predicting the future of VR because uh, I think it's still malleable. It's still all for the taking. It's not fixed. Um, you know, you can get involved now and make all the difference because we're at that like really crucial, like we, we still have, it hasn't gone mainstream. So there's still a lot of like norms that can be shaped. But I suppose if it just carried on like in this trajectory and like nothing happens change, I think it will become a sort of popular form of gaming um an extension of gaming and also used in enterprise to increase like efficiency or to allow like pre-visualization of products to be used in design etc mm -hmm. um, so there's it will be used but um i can't see it being unfortunately like you know location-based virtual reality what like limina has done for so many years is um it's really shaky right now because obviously the pandemic has really hit it and it's something it's kind of it's risk on risk you know the risk of going out the house and going to you know an indoor public space and plus the risk of trying out a new tech that you've not tried before um for people who aren't already super comfortable with this new technology and maybe they're not um also kind of comfortable and relaxed around the covid risk and that's you know it's quite a lot of people and that will, will i think put them off so I think there's going to be a bit of a a bit of a battle for that cultural creative virtual reality that's yes you do get cultural creative gaming that some of it's awesome but the stuff that's not gaming that is in that cultural creative space really you know there was a genre that was being born and and really it was growing it was exciting and there's a community forming around it um many people come from all different backgrounds as well different sectors like really rather wonderful and i think that it might be difficult to to kind of keep that vibrancy, you know. So try to be optimistic, um, but I suppose I'm also speaking from the context of somebody who spent a lot of time setting up this VR theatre format that really, really worked, and now like just can't happen. The spreadsheets don't work anymore. You know, models broken with COVID. Even if, even though you know legally we could do it now, it's not like against the law to be, you know regulation wise it's okay it's still just audience demand and how to make it covid safe is is a tricky one so yeah i'm speaking from somebody who's probably that's my context have you got any plans on where you might take it or how you could make it work in that that early post-covid world well we're really um loving working on lost in song and working with nhs arden gem and excathedra it's just really like making this VR that will improve people's mood that's something that I'm just personally getting a lot of joy from and yeah. um, VR that takes you to you know beautiful natural locations so it's just a really joyful project to work on so it's hard to, really to project 
like where Limon is going to go because the external circumstances are still pretty volatile. The sure. economy is in a very strange situation right now. So it, we're sort of taking it like day by day, month by month and, um, you know, enjoying this kind of present moment of, you know, I get to go back into being like exec producing again. And <laughs> on a personal level, like there's something in this that I'm, I suppose, yeah, to reconnect with that side of myself is also really lovely. Yeah. So I see the good in it really. Um, yeah. So the plan is, is that we'll launch this prototype and then if it works, cause it's a prototype, we'll take it forward and, you know, maybe get it verified as a medical device for instance that's something on the cards um we're looking at social prescribing as a distribution route so i can i suppose well, i can't tell you any fixed plans clear what i'm interested in which is yeah. um vr that can have a positive impact on people's mental health and something that you could do at home in the way that you maybe meditation might not feel accessible for instance or maybe singing might not feel accessible um, or maybe you want to add it to something you know meditation singing that you're doing already but something that as a a self mood management tool in that well-being space and very very creative and you know an artistic space to be working in actually even though currently the context you know we're not looking at the context of um this going into say an art gallery for instance mm. that sounds great that sounds very much needed and yeah a really nice place to start moving to, to when's when's the prototype coming out is that, is oh, that in, in the autumn yeah 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 you will definitely have it by Christmas. Um, so yeah, we'll keep you posted on that. And it, yeah, it will work as well actually, just as 360 um, immersive experience on desktop, on phone, on Google Cardboard as well, obviously. So we want it just to be really accessible. Like yeah. if you've got a computer that you bought in the last 10 years, we hope it will work. <laughs> Brilliant, that sounds great. Yeah, so yeah, hopefully we'll get those really, really broad audiences. That's what we're keen to do. Um, Fantastic. So I think just wrapping up, we could obviously talk to you all day. You've got so much to share and it's fascinating hearing all the projects that, you, that you've worked on and looking forward as well. So um, it's amazing. I was just, oh. just to finish off, if you have any advice that you could give to someone who was keen to explore or move into the immersive technology space, especially maybe those coming from a non-technical background. Well, I think something a bit of advice is to be confident with the fact that whatever sector you're from, whatever you do, there is probably something that's relevant to VR already because VR is like, you know, it's, well, it's virtual reality. It's like recreating reality. So that means that you've got, if you've got skills in this real world, there's probably something you can take to VR. So for instance, like if you're an event organizer, what events happen in VR or VR events happen, you know, or even understanding the structure of like, people doing things in space then you would be able to maybe be creating virtual reality experiences because of that so or even you know if you come from a background of maybe finance well there's the whole finance that goes into vr so like there's so much that so many real wide breadth of skills that we need in this sector at the moment and it is growing it is still all to play for so i suppose like keep that inner confidence you know as a, as a tip and if you can't say um you're not a unity developer um you're you can't like code or don't see that as like a, a barrier you know like come into it whatever way feels possible for you and the rest will come you know i'm not saying like oh well you know being able to 
use games engine software is not important i do think it's important to understand it that you can come in from all different directions so yeah that inner confidence i think is an important thing um and then i suppose to again this is maybe more of an attitude than a specific like tip but uh, to remember that we're at that stage pre-mainstream where there is a likelihood that this is going to go in some form mainstream um, or at least become, you know, a sort of part of our culture. So remember, that when, once you're in the space, the, the decisions that you um, are in the room with and maybe are making or are observing being made will have, if this, if this does expand as a medium to the scale that is forecast by investors, for instance, then they will these decisions will have an amplified impact on society and on lots of different people not just the people who are using the vr as well so remember that and try as much as you can to sort of think from lots of different people's perspectives the best way of doing that is by talking to people so focus groups you know live labs um surveys uh, user testing with people who you might decide as like a sort of an edge case, like an edge user, somebody who's not like actually typical of your core user, but understanding that broader context uh, will take you, I think, a long way, not just, you know, in your immediate career, but also might make you feel quite proud decades later. Brilliant. That's a great way to end. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been amazing talking to you. And really I love this. Fun. This is really fun. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> really interesting stuff to be talking through with you and such great reflections that i think you've both had as well thanks so much for having me thank you, thank you. Thank you so much